Hey everyone, my name is Chris Chuff. I'm a partner in Troutman Pepper's business litigation group. Uh, I specialize in complex corporate and commercial litigation, particularly in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Um, I'm joined today by Taylor Bartholomew, an M&A and corporate attorney from Troutman Pepper. Taylor, who also sits in Delaware, represents clients in a wide variety of public and private transactions, including, as relevant today, private equity deals. Um, he also specializes in counseling clients in matters of Delaware corporate governance law. On last podcast, we talked about the drafting considerations that crop up in operating agreements of private equity portfolio companies. And today we're going to dive into drafting considerations in P acquisitions, particularly the provisions in which parties can address fraud claims. Why don't you start out by kind of outlining the type of provisions that can be used to address fraud claims? Absolutely. So as you know, Chris, Delaware has a very well-developed body of case law around fraud, right? So it, everybody knows what they're getting into. Sophisticated parties can contract for certain treatment in the acquisition agreement in respect of fraud. So a couple of things to keep in mind. So in Delaware, fraud can include, it actually does under common law, include concepts of both intentional conduct and reckless conduct. Right. So in Delaware, the famous case on point is, is the Abri Partners case. Right. And it says that fraud uh, can actually be negotiated down to intentional fraud. Right. In other words, what most practitioners call true fraud. And I'm using air quotes here. So true fraud. Right. Is intentional fraud. It's not something I should have known or it, it's something I, I actually meant to defraud someone when I was making representations and warranties in the acquisition agreement, right? So that's a commonly used sell-side tactic to limit the universe of fraud claims. And I would also say at this point in time, it's fairly market. It's fairly well accepted. Most buyers don't push back on a negotiated definition of fraud. And in fact, it is expected that a seller will get that. That's one component. That's that's the definition of fraud. And then the other big point is anti-reliance provisions. Those have been getting a lot of airtime and they used to get a lot more, but I'd like to think we don't get so much these days because it's fairly well settled, right? So an anti-reliance provision for our listeners here, what it does, is it disclaims any kind of representations outside of the four corners of the purchase agreement, right? So as practitioners, we're worried about things like, if I'm on the sell side, what did management say, right, in a management presentation? Uh, what did the bankers upload to the data room, right? Anything can really be used against you on the sell side as a representation, right? Even if it was an oral representation. And there are cases to that that effect. So Delaware says, look, we're sophisticated parties, right? Around the table, this is a negotiated transaction. So we're going to allow the parties to cabin the universe of fraud claims again, by saying you can limit the universe of fraud claims to contractual fraud only. So we're not worrying about those management presentation, you know, those those things that were said by management during that management presentation. We're not worried about that thing that seller said on a call, right? Or we're not worried about anything that was uploaded to the data room. We are saying, if you care about this representation, 
then you need to write it down in words and put it in the representations and warranties article in the acquisition agreement. So yep. Delaware draws a line and says, everyone can agree that um, lying is bad, right? But we're going to say like, these are the things in the agreement that we're willing to make legal representations on. That's where Delaware draws the line. They say contractual fraud can never be disclaimed, but extra contractual fraud that can be limited. Yep. And this one, this one is one that has a big, big impact on any subsequent litigation. Cause as you pointed out, if, if there's an effective anti-reliance provision, then a plaintiff can only assert a contractual fraud claim. That means a lie contained within the contract itself. And so that's a very limited universe of statements that are highly negotiated and have usually a bunch of qualifying language. And so there's a lot more hoops to jump through. Whereas if extra contractual fraud has not been waived, it completely opens up the entire litigation to, as you said, everything said during contract negotiations, every single document, every single sentence in every single document that's in the data room, which is usually gigs of data, everything in management presentations. And so it's just, it exponentially increases the amount of statements that can be, you know, used against a company in connection with an acquisition. So this one is a really important one, particularly for the sellers. Now, does it make sense, Taylor, for a buyer to also negotiate for an anti-reliance provision? If so, when? That's a great question. It's become increasingly more common for buyers to get sued for extra contractual fraud in more complex transactions. So, so my take is if you're doing a deal with a rollover component, or an earnout or both, then the buy side should be seeking at the outset an anti-reliance provision in their favor. And as a negotiating point, it would just be, I'm willing to give sell side an anti-reliance provision and that benefit, so I should get the same. And the reason is, why do I say in the context of a rollover investment or an earnout? It's because those have more of a potential to trigger discussions between the parties that talk about the value of the enterprise going forward, about whether the earnout will be paid, about the value of the equity that they're receiving, right? Any upside in the future, how successful the platform will be. Ultimately, the more complex your transaction, the more of a potential there is to have liability for extra contractual statements. On the flip side, yeah. if it's a more simple transaction, I always like to advise that if the only thing you're doing at closing is paying the purchase price and repping that you have the authority to do the deal and that you are an entity organized under Delaware law, there's really no benefit to an anti-reliance provision. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so if you're a buyer, if you're looking at all cash deal, all cash at closing, no earn out, no rollover, you might want to try to negotiate for no anti-reliance provision on either side. And at the end of the day, there's not real because there's really not that much protection for buyer with such of a provision because, you know, the buyer is not really making much representations. They're just saying, I'll pay you this for your business. But where you have either maintaining rollover equity or there's an earnout, there's more of an incentive, more risk for the buyer. And uh, they should think about getting a mutual 
anti-reliance provision rather than a one-way. That's exactly right. And of course, in, in actual practice, the difficulty can be responding to counsel on the other side who may not be necessarily keyed into these concepts. So then it's always the interesting question of, well, I'm on the buy side, they're on the sell side, they haven't put in an anti-reliance provision, do I need to put in one? Right? And I think that's really a a discussion with your client as to the the riskiness of not including one, right? right. I think generally speaking, and correct me if, if you think this is off base, Chris, but I think generally speaking, it's always more risky for sell side to not have an anti-reliance provision as opposed to the buy side going without one. Uh, so I completely agree with that. And, you know, obviously generalities are, are uh, dangerous and every situation is different, but generally speaking, if I'm on the buy side and the sell side doesn't put an anti-reliance provision in, I'm probably staying silent on that because there's more risk to the seller than there is to the buyer. I think even probably in those complicated deals, but that's a closer question. So I think I would stay silent. And then if the seller eventually raised it, then I would, I would probably insist on it being mutual. But I agree, there's a lot more risk for fraud claims typically against sellers than there is for buyers. And it's worth noting that, I mean, like I mentioned in the definition of fraud, an anti-reliance provision, especially on the sell side, very well accepted, definitely a market approach. No parties should really have hesitation over that. Um, it's it's really the, the, the reaction is always, if you think something is important, write it down in a representation and I'll tell you if I can make it. That's ultimately the response. If anybody ever has any hesitation over an anti-reliance provision, it's really just, I can't control what my employees say. I can't control what the banker says. So let's write it down and review it together and shake hands on it. Got it. All right. So we got so far, we have uh, how to address fraud and acquisition agreements. The first thing is the definition of fraud and the big negotiating point is whether you know, one of the big negotiating points is whether we're going to allow fraud claims based on recklessness only or whether it has to be intentional. And then the second is whether an anti-reliance provision is going to be included and whether it's mutual or one way. Are there any other provisions that parties should be thinking about when addressing fraud claims? Absolutely. The, it actually, the first one that comes to mind is the anti-reliance provision itself. And to make sure that it's drafted appropriately, what do I mean by that? I mean, oftentimes I see uh, drafts of acquisition agreements from, the, say, an auction context, right? Sell side serves up an auction draft. We look at it, we review, and unfortunately for the seller, they have included an anti-reliance provision in the seller representations that says something to the effect of buyer is not relying on any representations uh, other than these representations set forth in Article 3 or something like that. Delaware law has made it clear, as you are aware, Chris, as well, that the anti-reliance provision needs to be from the perspective of the aggrieved party for it to be effective. So in other words, in this context, the auction draft would have had to have a reciprocal anti-reliance provision in the buyer's reps that says the buyer is acknowledging that the seller is not making any representations outside of the four corners of this agreement for that to be effective. So if you're on the sell side, just be aware that that anti-reliance provision has to actually be acknowledged by the buyer. It cannot just be the sell side saying, this is my representation and I'm not making any other representations. That's not enough. 
It has to be from the other side. Right. That's very important. Yeah. So to, so to put it in context, buyer brings fraud claim. If you have a statement in the contract that says seller is only making these reps and no others, that's not going to be enough to get rid of a extra contractual fraud claim. What you need is a statement that says something to the effect that buyer is only relying on the reps in this contract and no others, because it has to be from the perspective of the aggrieved party. Did I get that right? That's exactly right. And then any other drafting considerations regarding anti-reliance provisions? If not, you know, what other provisions should we be looking at to address fraud? All right. Anything else on anti-reliance? Not on anti-reliance, but I did want to address one specific thing regarding who is making the reps in the purchase agreement. And this is really coming out of a recent case, I think from last year, that addressed um, fraud and specifically a walkaway deal uh, construct. So deal lawyers, uh, for our listeners out there, right, uh, who are deal lawyers, know this argument very well, right? If I'm on the sell side, uh, I will draft the acquisition agreement such that the company is a party and the company is making reps. Now, the obvious problem uh, on the buy side to that argument is, or to that drafting nuance, is that I am acquiring the company, right? So if the company is making the reps, then the argument is, well, how do I pursue claims for fraud if the company is the one that is making the reps in the purchase agreement and not, for instance, the sellers? So for years and years and years, parties have been arguing over who should make the reps, right? And it's always been viewed as the company makes the reps uh, on the sell side, right? That's a sell side favorable position. And then if you're on the buy side, you change that to say the sellers and the company jointly and separately are making the reps or the sellers jointly and separately are making the reps. Uh, again, under the theory that we're going to chase the sellers for fraud, right? Because they are the ones making the statement. Now, I alluded to the fact earlier that chancery is very commercial, right? That is why chancery is so good at what it does. So in recent cases, chancery has made it clear that it doesn't really matter who's making the reps, right? It doesn't matter what we say in the acquisition agreement, because while the chancery will read that and interpret it, there is a rule regarding fraud, right? So the rule is if there's a member of management or a seller who's actively involved in the business, and who actively participates in the making of the reps and the preparation of the disclosure schedules, then ultimately a buyer is going to be able to bring fraud claims against that party, regardless of the fact of what the lead into the article of the reps and warranty says. Got it. Now, if there is an anti-reliance provision, can you bring an extra contractual fraud claim against the management or is it still limited to solely to contractual fraud claims, meaning fraud claims arising out of statements within the contract itself. Solely arising out of contractual representations and warranties. Right. So so the anti-reliance provision bars the claims no matter who the defendants are, um, and, and they have to go through a contractual fraud claim rather than an extra contractual fraud claim. That is if there's an anti-reliance provision. Correct. And And breaking it down a simple, perhaps too simple example, if we had an acquisition agreement that said the company is making the reps, um, and then we had a series of customary uh, representations on the financial statements, 
post-closing, it comes out that the sellers were cooking the books, so to speak. Um, the the old argument would have been, well, there's no liability for for sellers, right? Because they didn't make the representations about the financial statements being, you know, true, correct, and complete in all respects. Um, now it's very clear that we could pursue uh, claims against sellers for fraud for cooking the books because they actively participated in uh, negotiating the reps, uh, making the reps, preparing the disclosure schedules, and they've been actively involved in the business. Interesting. Okay. All right, so uh, we have the definition of fraud. We have anti-reliance provisions. We have the, you know, who is making the reps and non-recourse provisions. Any other provisions that typically address fraud, or are those the main ones? Actually, you bring up a great point with non-recourse provisions. So, typically on the buy side, when we represent private equity firms uh, and their portfolio companies, we often put in the acquisition agreement a provision called a non-recourse provision. And what that provision says is that it's really only the parties to the agreement that can be on the hook for any kind of legal liability. And the point of it is to say, look, you can't really go all the way to the top to the private equity fund or the firm itself uh, because they're not actually party to the agreement. Delaware courts have repeatedly said that a non-recourse provision is completely ineffective uh, to shield parties that participated in fraud from liability. Regardless of that ruling, I constantly see drafts, um, and I'm probably guilty of it myself, of putting in non-recourse provisions, but practitioners should definitely know uh, for our listeners out there that non-recourse provisions aren't really worth the paper that they're written on. Got it. Okay. So what I'm gathering here is that basically in general terms, a party can contractually seek to modify its exposure to post-closing fraud claims by bargaining for limits on you know, what information the buyer is relying upon through anti-reliance provisions, when the buyer may bring a claim through survival provisions, who among the sellers may be held liable, and then how much the buyer may recover if it proves its uh, claim through caps, floors, and other damages limitations. But all of that is limited by Delaware public policy preventing the elimination or limiting of intentional contractual fraud claims. That is an intentionally fraudulent statement about a provision within the contract itself, right? For those claims, you can't limit the when, the who, what, when, where, and why. Is that is that right? That's exactly right. It boils down to there being a public policy against lying on paper, right? It's it's not do your diligence and and whoever buries the claim better, right? It wins the day. That's that's not what it is in Delaware. If we make contractual reps, we need to um, conduct the business by those reps, right? We need to operate as if those reps are true, because otherwise it's not it's not worth anything. That's, that's that, how Delaware goes. Right, because those are the fundamental underpinnings of the deal. I mean, that's that's literally what the parties agreed upon. That's And so you can't get rid of, you know, again, intentional lies about those things. So that that covers everything uh, on on kind of my outline. Um, we, we hit the fiduciary duty waivers, the exculpatory provisions, the indemnification provisions, how to address fraud and acquisition agreements. Is there anything that we didn't cover specific to PE deals that you think we ought to address? No, I think we've 
covered everything pretty comprehensively. So just wanted to thank you for having me and thanks for the time. Absolutely. Uh, I also wanted to thank our listeners and I hope you found our conversation insightful today as we progress further into 2022. Uh, consistently recognized as a top tier national practice, Trauma and Pepper's corporate attorneys regularly handle multi-million and multi-billion dollar transaction. And the firm has particular expertise in the private equity and private fund services. We advise clients on matters from fund formation to acquisitions, investments, and exit transactions. For more information about Troutman Pepper and our private equity group, please visit Troutman.com. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including, without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.